0: Times because he can come at any time when they least expect him to come. Then, beginning in chapter 14, here in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14, uh, Jesus begins to tell yet another story about his second coming. And this is a story about the talents. The talents. You're probably very familiar with that story. But in this particular parable, what Jesus does is he teaches his disciples what they can expect from Jesus when he returns. But more importantly, he teaches them, this particular parable teaches us what Jesus will expect of us when he returns. Sometimes we think, okay, what do we expect when Jesus comes? But we fail to understand that Jesus will come expecting something from you and from me. And so what he's expecting is that you and I will be good stewards. So what we're going to do is this morning we're going to walk through the text as we always do. And, and I hope that's okay. Is that okay? We work through the text of Scripture, right? God's Word. And what we're going to do is we're going to see three specific truths concerning the subject of stewardship. The first thing we need to see, and the most important is this, is that Jesus owns everything. Jesus owns everything. All right, now listen, I got a little spoiled when I was in India, okay? They don't even speak the language, but they would bob their head up and down like this, okay? Actually, they did this. This means yes, side to side, all right? I, I, I thought they were saying no. I'm like, man, do they just hate me? And he's like, no, we love you. And so that means yes in India, okay? If you want to bob this way, that's fine. I understand that this means yes, and it's good. So spoil me a little bit, okay? And so first of all, Jesus owns everything. Notice beginning in verse 14, he says, for it will be like a man. Going on a journey. The it there is talking about the second coming. And this man that he's talking about is a wealthy landowner. Now, this would have been well known and very common in the first century there in Palestine. Many wealthy landowners, they would have been accustomed to this. But this particular landowner, he was going on a journey, which means he was leaving for a period of time. The scripture doesn't tell us for how long specifically it's going to be. It doesn't tell us when he's going to be back. But later in the text, it tells us that it was, in fact, a very long journey. But before he goes, he brings his servants aside. The Bible says "Who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, the servants here, the word servants here is the Greek word doulos, which simply means slave or servant. And here it really, really corresponds or really um, speaks more specifically about bond servants in the Roman Empire. Uh, there were bond servants or slaves, many of them, they abounded there in the first century. There were literally of hundreds of thousands of slaves and bond servants there in the Roman Empire during the first century. Uh, many of the rich had many, many uh, bond servants to be able to do various tasks. Some of them uh, would just do manual labor. They would dig ditches. That's what I would be there for, just, you know, the ones that weren't so bright, just digging ditches. That's, sorry, if you dig ditches, you're, I'm sure you're intelligent. I I I probably didn't think that through. I'm so sorry, but they just did... uh, Man, the whole sermon's blown, isn't it? I'm so... You are very smart people. All right, and so, so then others would do other things like uh, they would be very intelligent. They would have great education and they would do uh, very specific things like they would overlook the entire household. They would overlook the businesses because really they had more intellect and education than even their masters did. But the key here is understanding these servants, these slaves, these, these um, bond servants was that they owned nothing. They owned nothing at all. The shirts that they wore, the clothes that they wore on their backs was not their own. The food that they ate was not their own. The beds that they slept in was not their own. They owned absolutely nothing. In fact, they didn't even own themselves. They were viewed legally as the property of their master. So the master owned all things. He owned everything and everything about them. Now before this master goes, understand he's going to give them a certain amount of money. The Bible says here that he gave five talents to one, to another two, and to yet another one talent. In the New Testament, you'll read about talents, and it either refers to one or two things in the New Testament. It refers to a type of weights, the weight of something, but it also refers, in this particular area, a coin, which was a talent. And he divvied it up. Some of them he gave five, some of them he gave two, some of them he gave one. Now, why did he give them a different amount? Good question, But we have the answer right in the text. He says he gave it to them according to his own ability. So he understood his servants. He knew them forward and backwards, inside and out. He knew what their abilities were. And he wasn't going to entrust a great sum to somebody that didn't have the ability to be able to use that in the appropriate way. So he would look at their skill set, he would look at their abilities, and he would give them a certain amount of talents, five, two, or one, based on what he knew that they could ultimately handle and be faithful with. Now understand this, when he goes away, why is he giving the money to them? He doesn't give them the money for them to sit there and go, all right, this is cool, let's take it, let's go do whatever we want. There's an expectation placed on them. They are owned by the master. This money is the master's. He's entrusting them while he's away to be able to invest this money to expand and promote his purposes, not their own. So he gives that to him, and he goes off, and here's the great expectation that he has of him. Now, the question is, in explaining that, what does all of this mean? We understand that a parable is we kind of call it a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. That's not exactly right, but you get the gist of it. So who who is this master? Who are these servants that he's referring to? Some of you, of course, already know. But I got to tell you, I got to be honest with you, before a couple of years ago, I actually studied this passage in depth. When I first read it, I just kind of thought that the master, they were just speaking of God the Father, and it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That the story is God the Father, he's the master. He owns everything because he's the creator. Go back to the book of Genesis, created all things. And then he entrusted Adam and Eve with the creation, right? He says, you know, be fruitful, multiply, and they were supposed to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, and all the creatures that lived on the earth. And so they were supposed to be faithful with what God had given them to be able to glorify God in all that they did and built and created. So it seems to make sense, but when you begin to really study the passage, you begin to understand that he's not speaking about God the Father, but rather he's referring to God the Son, to Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who is the master in this parable. And his going away is the time period between his first ad, the first advent and the second advent. That's simply his first coming and his second coming. Remember what happens. Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he appears amongst the believers over a period of 40 days. He appears to 500 people. And then before he leaves, he gets this small contingent of believers up on a mountain. Remember this? And then he's about to leave them. He's about to do what? Go on a journey. And as he's about to go on the journey, he says, listen, I've entrusted you with all of this, Acts 1, right? I've given you all of this. And then he says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing men in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He goes, teaching them all that I have commanded you, even to the ends of the age. That's his last instruction. He says, listen, I've given you everything. I've given my people everything they need. Now, I'm going to go. Now, you servants who are left behind, you are to go about promoting and propagating my purposes here on earth with what I entrusted you with. Now, who are the servants? It's you and I, right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the servant of God. You are a bondservant. Paul, even in writing many of his letters, introduces himself as Paul, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul, the slave of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He understands that he is owned by God. Now, Jesus Christ actually owns us doubly. I don't, even, I don't know if that's appropriate grammar, but he doubly owns you. All right, He doubly owns me. How? Because, in fact, he did create you. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes this. He says in Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created. Were you created? Then you are God's. Jesus Christ created you, therefore you are subject and owned by him because you are his creation. But he doubly owns us because he not only created us, but he also redeemed us because We know that that creation, we rebelled against him, willfully rebelled against him, sinned against him, went and did what was right in our own eyes. We were worthy of his judgment and his condemnation. But what does Jesus do? Instead of condemning us and killing us, he extends grace. He steps down out of heaven and he dies for us, redeeming us and purchasing us back to be his own Where do we see that? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Okay, you were given the Spirit by God. You were created by God. He is yours. But notice this. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. What was the price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ purchased you. You are not. I am not my own. It's not only that everything I have is his, it's that me myself is his we are his, all of us his. Everything we have is ultimately his. Now, we sit back and we look at that and we think, okay, that's great. And the truth of the matter is, is to be owned, really, let's be honest, really doesn't have a really positive thought to it, right? Hey, somebody owns you. What do we think of? We think of slavery. And, and that's a horrible thing, despicable thing, despicable sin uh, on really the site of our country and even the early churches. Some early churches even promoted slavery as being the will of God. It's a horrible part of this world. But do you know that slavery still exists, especially the sex trade? Even in India where we were, the sex trade is alive and well. It's even alive and well here in Jacksonville, Florida, of all things. So these are negative things. These are things that we do not think fondly of. In fact, and let me lighten the mood just a little bit, um, we even use it in the sports world, right? I mean, have you ever sit there and go, hey, buddy, the other team, we own you. Yeah, we own you, right? No, have you never heard this before? I think I've seen some of you with your underwear outside your britches at a Florida Georgia game yelling that, okay? And the sad part is this, The sad part is this, is that for many years, we Gator fans were owned by Georgia. And it was so wonderful to go, we own you. Even when we stink, we own you. Well, the tide has turned, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now Georgia owns the Gators right? And and they sit there. And I got to tell you, it still doesn't feel real good now. The other said, hey, we own you felt great. They own us now. Doesn't feel so good. Negative connotation. But can I tell you this? To be owned by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the sweetest idea I can think of. It's a wonderful thing. You were owned by somebody who created you and gave you every good and perfect gift. You were owned by the one that even when you rebelled, He gave his very life for you to redeem you back. What depth of love, what depth of mercy, what depth of grace. If you're going to be owned, be owned by Jesus. It says here in the word that each of us are his. Everything we have then is his. It's been entrusted to us to do what? To really to be able to be used to promote not our purposes, but the purposes of Jesus Christ. Now, notice that we all, just like these servants here, we all have a different level of talents, if you will. Now, when I use the word talents, again, I don't mean gifts and abilities, but we can say that as well. Because this isn't just about, the series is not just simply about money. We're going to focus on that. But the truth of the matter is, is that God has given us a different level of talents, abilities, gifts, money, affluence. Isn't that true? Not everybody is the same talent. Ashley doesn't have as much musical talent as I do, but that's okay, Right? And so, so we understand that. And look, we understand that there are some of you, and I talk with you, and it's amazing to me how smart some of y'all are. I mean, it just kind of blows me away. I'm like, wow, I really hope they don't know how dumb I am compared to them, right, when I, when I talk with them. And the truth is, some people are incredibly staggering intellects. They can read very hard works of, of, of writing and, and, and of authors, and some of us are just challenged to find our keys in the morning. Are, are you with me? All right, some of us, you know, some people are very, very talented. They have incredible gifts. You ever know somebody like that? You're like, is there nothing they can do? And I'm 42, and I'm still trying to figure out, is there anything I'm good at? Right, right? You, you, you with me on that? Same with money. You look around. My brother was like this. Um, my brother made crazy tons of money. Every time he turned around, he would burp, and money would fly out of his mouth. It was the weirdest thing, uh, money. And then we try to, you know, it's, you could do whatever you want, and you're like, man, it's still, I, it, wow, I it's still, that bank account's still the same. It just never really changes, does it? Because there's really still nothing in there. And so you're looking, and so some people, God's given these different things. And we can look at that, and, and we can be frustrated. But let me just give you two quick words here of encouragement. The fact that Jesus has doled out different levels of gifts, abilities, and even riches is actually a comforting thing. It's comforting because why does he give some more than he gives others? And, you know, I, I tell young people this as they're growing up. They're sitting there going, man, I just wish I was smarter. I just wish I was, I was uh, you know, had a better personality. I just wish that maybe I was, uh, I was this or more athletic or whatever it is. And I sit there and say, you need to understand, you didn't get those things because God doesn't love you. He gave you those things because God loves you. And person looks at you and goes, how could he love me for that? He loves you for this is this. He knows what you can handle. So for some of us that sit back and go, I wish I had the intellect of a John Piper or a John MacArthur or whatever it is, he sits back and he goes, Mike, you couldn't have handled the intellect of John Piper and John MacArthur. You would have been so puffed up and so arrogant that you would have never seen your need for me. I know you inside and out. I knew exactly what you could handle. The same exact with riches. You see people go around and they're like, man, I don't know what to do. I've done absolutely everything right. And sometimes we don't do well financially just simply because of our own misuse of the finances that God has entrusted us with. But sometimes if you ever wanted to say, man, I'm doing all right and I'm not getting any more affluent than what I am. Could it be that God knows that that's exactly where you need to be? That if you were to be all the more rich, That all that would do is just grow in your heart the affluence and the desire for things and money more and you'd begin worshiping them and all your affections would be for it rather than your Lord and Savior. And God loves you enough to sit back and say, I know what you need and I will give you nothing less and I will give you nothing more. But no matter what, the truth is this. You and I were created by God to be stewards and we are accountable, whether it is much or whether it is little. We are, we, we are to take whatever it is that God has given us, your talents, your abilities, your finances, whatever it is, and you are a steward of it, not to promote your own purposes, but to promote and to extend the purposes of God. Can we at least be agreed on that from the text of Scripture? Can we agree with that? So there's a second thing that we see here. That's truth number one, is that Jesus owns everything. Number two, we respond to the truth that Jesus owns everything. Now notice the verbiage there. I didn't say we should respond to the truth that Jesus owns everything or that we will respond to the truth that Jesus owns everything. What what, what did I say? We respond right now, right here, this week, we were already responding and we're responding now to the truth that Jesus owns everything. And we are either responding in the correct way or we are responding in a wrong way. Agreed? Now, here it is. What does the correct way look like? Well, we take a look at this in verse 16. There it says he, says, he who had received the five talents went out at once and he traded them and he made five talents more. All right. I, I don't know about you. I don't know where you're investing. I don't invest a whole lot, but what I invest is not really return a hundredfold. Any of you? If it does, let me know all right? You're probably a crook if it does, all right? So, so I mean, this guy, a hundredfold, here's five, man, I'm going to, if I had somebody come up and say, man, I can make your money double, I'd probably be like, dude, this is illegal. There's no way to be able to do this, right? Well, this guy is able to be able to double that which which he was entrusted with. This is a good servant. Now, whatever he said here for this first servant is true for the second servant. We just have time to break through the same exact thing. It's the same exact thing. But notice this: there are two keys that make him a good servant. The first is his urgency. His urgency. Do you notice that it says he went at once, as soon as the master came to him, and he understood that he was a steward, and he got it and entrusted them. He understood that in order to be found faithful and to accomplish what the master wanted him to accomplish, time was of the essence. He couldn't wait. He had to move. He had to get busy right away if he was going to fulfill and be faithful and be the good steward that his master was entrusting to be. There was a sense of urgency. May I say that for myself and for you, I pray that our church will have a great sense of urgency. That time is of the essence. I think all of us go through this thing and buy into this lie that right now we have too much going on and we don't have enough money really to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And I think if we're not careful, that we will begin to say this. We will say that time that we will have, when we will have more time and we will have more money to be able to spend for the purposes of God is another stage, is the next stage of our life. Don't you feel this, right? Imagine this with me, teenagers, right? Teenager, and I love you teenagers. Here's how teenagers think. This is how I thought, man, my life is hard. I've got so many responsibilities and so many things on me. I just don't even know what I'm going to do. I got so little bit of money, man. I got to go to school. Man, I got to I got I got to make my bed in the morning. Man, this life is tough. I only get like 20 bucks a week from my parents, man. How am I supposed to make 20 weeks? $20 work, and so sometimes when we're talking about the things of Jesus, they're projecting out on who they're going to be when they become an adult. They say, listen, that's all cool, but that's really going to make a lot more sense when when times are easier and I have more money, like when I get married and have children and get a job. And then you sit back and you're like, you're, you're, you're making money, and you turn, and the kids got more toys than you do. Are you you with me? And you're like, how did I have more spendable income when I was 16 than I do at 42? How is that even possible, right? And you're kind of trying to navigate that through. But then, you know, you got the kids, and you're so busy. We know. We got four of them. We know what it's like. It's busy, and they're all over the place. It's wonderful, but it's busy, and, and you're doing your job, and you're, you're trying to be a part of church. You're trying to do all these kind of things. And in your mind, it's very easy to say, well, right now, we're just very, what, busy, and there's just a lot of things to be able to pay for. A lot of things going on. Listen, the next stage of life will be better. I'll be able to kind of be freed up. Wait until, uh, wait until the kids are out of the house. They don't have tons of free time to be able to do and tons of money to do whatever. And then they get out of the house and you're like, oh my goodness, i got to retire. I don't have any money. We've got to save every single penny. We've got to do whatever we got to do. we got to put a new roof on the house and we got to fix our house because soon we're going to go in hi- hibernation and we're just going to have to survive. So I can't serve God now. Eventually, and I think Jimmy just taught, taught on this a the, the couple of weeks ago, eventually you get to the point where you have no money and no time, you're dead. And you never really were a good steward of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we are urgent. I, I pray that we will do what the scriptures say here in John chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus said, we, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. If you're going to get anything out of this message today, it is going to be this, time is of the essence. You don't have the time that you think that you have. You don't think that you have a future that all of a sudden you could just flip a switch and get busy for the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be urgent. Secondly, we must be consistent. Notice the word there he says, traded. It doesn't mean that he just traded, he won the lottery, and he became rich, and he goes, hey, work is done. This means that he traded. The verb tense is that he traded again and again and again and again and again, and and he continued to trade until his master came back. This was consistent work. How many times I've seen in churches, people say, when they start getting a little bit older, well, you know what, I I used to watch in the nursery, and I used to watch the kids, and I used to be a part of a small group in a Sunday school, and I used to serve all these things, but you know what, I'm a little bit older. It's somebody else's turn. It's somebody else's turn. The same exact truth is in the area of giving. If you were to look at our giving throughout the year, unless you guys are just like all like you know working uh, where you get a certain percentage when you sell, what do you they call that? When, when you commission. Unless we're all commission, um, there's something really weird with our giving here. Uh, if you look at it, it's kind of like we know it's like hibernation. Listen, it's April. Don't spend a dime, okay? Because all of a sudden the giving starts off pretty good in the year. They go. Pfft, Just nothing, tick, 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 tick. Then summer, it just kind of takes, and we're like, how's our numbers? Numbers are pretty good. Well, what happened to the giving? And then all of a sudden, Mike, at the end of the year, all of a sudden is like, hey, we need to preach on giving. We're really not close to paying the bills, so maybe I need to throw a little something out as a reminder. And so you get up and preach, and then all of a sudden we see the spike in giving. It's kind of up a little bit. We're doing good. Five weeks go by. You're down again and everything. Listen to me. We must be consistent in our giving. If you get a regular paycheck, just make it consistent. Pay whatever it is that you have determined in your mind and in your heart as a gracious giver. Give to God. And don't let your vacation determine whether you're going to give or not. Know that your giving is going to be first, and then your vacation will come second. Are you guys with me? So be consistent with that. Uh, Sometimes we have to take up special offerings. But do you know why we have to take up special offerings? Because we're not consistent and our giving. If the giving was consistent, we could sit there and go, okay, listen, guys, we know what we have. We can give to this and that, and we can make sure that all of these things are met. But when it's not consistent, we can't. I love what Paul Paul even, and we're going to teach about this later. Paul teaches consistency, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put everything aside, or something is, not everything, whoa, Phew. That was scary. Something aside. There, we feel much better about that. That was Mike's translation. Put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Then notice this. He says, so that there will be no collecting when I come. He says, I don't want to have to come and there be a lack of money to be able to do the ministry. He says, give each week and give consistently, at least every monthly, however you're going to give. He goes, so that when we come, we don't have to take up a special offering. There'll be plenty of there to be able to meet whatever needs that we have to be able to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. You all with me so far? So this is what we need to do. Nothing else. Get busy. Reject, guys. Listen, reject the notion that serving and giving is for a different time in life. Reject the thought that serving and giving will be easier at a different time and go to work and go to giving now. Amen? Now. Now, that's the right way to approach. Here's the wrong response. Notice the next part of the verse. He says, But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, why dig a hole? Well, if you don't have safes and you don't have vaults and you don't have these kind of things, you need to be able to protect your money somehow. Uh, and so what they would do, it would be common just to kind of dig a hole and stick your money in it, and that would be a good place as long as nobody knows that you dug the hole there, right? So you've got to be good. You've got to cover it with leaves and so things like that and make sure nobody sees that you had buried it, right? And then you need to hope that you remember where you buried it. That would have been my problem, digging holes all in the backyard. I know it's around here somewhere, right? And so they would, they would sit there, and they would, they, would, they would dig a hole. Now, here's the idea is that the master, uh, this is not good stewardship. Because in essence, he doesn't do anything with what the master gives him. Now, this is what was kind of interesting to me. He does nothing with it. He just kind of sticks it somewhere, just kind of a safekeeping. But what's interesting to me is I was thinking, man, this would be much worse if he was saying that they were like dealing with what God had entrusted them with, like the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? Give me what I'm I'm demanding. He takes it, and then he goes out, and he just spends it on his friends and alcohol and women and all these things. He spends it ultimately wherever he wants. You guys remember this story, right? And I thought to myself, man, that would be much worse, to be able to take what has been entrusted and not just not do anything with it, but actually use it for my own selfish purposes. But then I begin to say, well, I don't want to go down that track because that's probably a closer picture to me than a guy who just does nothing with the money whatsoever. But the purpose is the same. Whether you're spending it on your own selfish gain or whether the person's doing nothing with it at all, maybe just hoarding it and sitting back and sitting on it, but not using it to be able to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ or to be able to promote the purposes of God, it's the same. Nothing is being done. This is, not, this is the wrong response to the fact that Jesus Christ owns everything. Now, let me show you the next truth here. Here's the third truth. We stand accountable for the truth that Jesus owns everything. Now, verse 19, notice this. He says, now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. Now, what I want you to see here is he comes unexpectedly. They don't know when he's going to come. He just shows up. And some of them are in the middle of working, and some of them are in the middle of doing nothing. Now, again, the Bible doesn't tell us the time or the hour that Jesus comes. Do you know what the Bible teaches about his second coming? That it's imminent. Now, get this. It's imminent. What does the word imminent mean? It, good, good good, question. Uh, after looking it up, it means, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, imminent means that, that it is likely that Jesus will come at any moment. That's the teaching of the New Testament. Every believer of every generation for the last 2,000 years was to view Jesus' return as imminent, that it was likely, that he was likely to come at any minute. Now, why are we supposed to approach it that way? Because if we know that Jesus isn't coming for another 1,000 years, what does it do? It promotes laziness. But if we know if he's coming quick, right, if you know he's coming right away, you've got to make sure something's done. My family, they go off, like maybe they're going to get a break. My, my wife wants to go and kind of visit a friend or something. You know, the one week a while back, a month or so ago, you know, it took, it took a couple of days there and I was kind of by myself. And I got to be honest with you, I don't know what was happening this one particular week, but I was sloppy. I was just sloppy. I mean, there were just dishes. I'm like, why are there no dishes? Oh, I've used them all. They're all over the sink. Okay. And so I remember sitting there, and my wife actually came home a day early. But she, but she was faithful and loving to let me know that she was coming home, right? And all of a sudden, the knowing that they're coming home seems to motivate you, right? You're like, she can come home at any time. I've got to clean this stuff up. Right, and We get done, and you're laying on the, I'm exhausted. Why are you exhausted? You didn't do anything. I'm sure, oh, yeah, I know. I'm just, maybe I didn't sleep well last night. You know. And you're exhausted for cleaning that thing. When there is an anticipation that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return at any, at any moment, and you live that way, you get to work. You know that he can come at any time. And when he comes, you want to be in the midst of what it is that he is doing for you and, and what he's entrusted you with. You can't wait. You can't wait. you got to get moving. And so he says, here he says, he, he comes, now notice the response of the one who had been entrusted with five, verse, verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Now, this guy, again, he doubles it, man. This is really good stuff. Now, notice, though, he's not braggadocious. He's not coming and going, look what I did. Check it out. You gave me five, but check it out. I turned it into five more, right? He's not, this is not braggadocious. He's merely stating the truth that he was faithful to do what any servant of God should do. You got that? So he's just saying, hey, this is just the minimal. This is. I'm not bragging because this is just what I should be doing. It's kind of what Jesus teaches in Luke seventeen ten. He says, when you do all the things which are commanded of you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. When you and I are giving as God calls us to give, when we are serving as God has called us to serve, we have nothing to boast in but Christ and Christ crucified because we are nothing but slaves. We are doing what is just naturally God has called us to do. You with me on that? This is just normal stuff. And so what I want you to understand here is this, is, is, is we need to be faithful with it. Now notice the response, verse 21. It says, "'His master said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful servant.'" He says, you have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Three things this good servant receives from Jesus. First of all, he receives praise. He receives praise. He says, well done, and good and faithful servant. Guys, is that what you're fighting for? Is that what you're longing for? I know. Listen, if you could ever just get a taste of Jesus, I know many of you do. But to hear Jesus say on that day, well done and good and faithful servant is something I'm scrapping for. I wanna hear that desperately. And here's the amazing part, is even when you and I attempt to do great things for God, right, you know what I'm talking, we're gonna do great things for God, man. I don't know about you, but every time I even in my most sincere earnestness try to attempt to do something from God, God, here's a sermon or here's, here's a visitation or here's a gospel presentation, and I really look at it for what it is, man, is it meager. Man, is it imperfect. In fact, so much of what I do in an attempt for God, for the glory of God, is just pathetic. Have you ever felt that way? Just sit back and go, okay, God, this is is it. This is what I did for you, and you lay it before him. This is how we know that he's a God of grace. He looks at that little beat-up piece of jalopy work for him, and he sits there and he goes, well done. Well done good and faithful servant. You know that Jesus is a God of mercy when he can do that. He gives him praise, but he also gives him reward. He says, you have been faithful over a little He goes, I will set you over much. Here's what you've got to understand. Wake up with, with eternity in mind. How faithful you are here will determine what you get in the world to come as far as what you will be responsible for the more faithful for, with what you are that God has entrusted you with. You sit there and go, well, why? We're not gonna be serving in, Jesus, in heaven. That's all you're gonna be doing is serving in heaven. You're gonna be serving just like you do here. Well, I don't know if I wanna go there. Then get saved. Then become born again. You're gonna serve. So he says, listen, you were faithful in this little down here. You wait to see what I'm gonna have you manage in the kingdom of God for all eternity. There's the reward. There's a third thing that he gives, and he gives joy. I love this most of all. Enter into the joy of his master. How awesome and cool is that? Enter into the joy of his master. What he says is your joy on, it's like what Paul says to live is Christ. If I live, it's all about Christ. If I die, it's gain. What is he talking about? Because I will be in the joy of my master. That's what I desire. Look, I don't get this whole thing, but I know there have been joyful times in my life. There have been times when I've seen a, a, a child of mine come to faith in Jesus. Joyful time. I've seen their birth. Joyful time. I've seen some of you come to faith in Jesus Christ. I've seen some of you really walk with God and do what God has called you to do. It brings me great joy when I be able to see that. But the joy that we will have in the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity is unimaginable and unspeakable. I can't explain it all to you. Just know, you think you know, you don't have any clue of how great it's going to be. And he says, come into my presence. And so this is the reward that he has for him. But v- verse 24, he does the same thing. Or excuse me, uh, the, the, the same thing with, um, happens with the second, uh, the, 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 excuse me, the steward with the two uh, talents as well. Same thing, same truth, same rewards. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent, came forward saying, "'Master, I knew you to be a hard man, "'reaping where you did not sow "'and gathering where you scattered no seed. "'So I was afraid, and I went and I hid the talent "'in the ground.'" He goes, "'Here you have what is yours.'" Now, he calls him a hard man. Remember, who is this person? It's Jesus. Calling them a hard man, what does the word hard mean? It means to be strict, harsh, cruel, and merciless. You know what this shows us? This is not a true believer in Jesus Christ. He does not know Jesus. He doesn't know him. He claims to be a believer, but he's no true believer. He's no true servant of God. And the way that we know that is because he is not going about being a good steward of what God has entrusted him with. You know, you know how we sit back, let me just side note. You know how we sit back and go, how do I know I'm saved? Isn't this a great understanding of whether we're truly saved or not? Are we going about investing for the kingdom of God and the person of God? Are we good stewards of what God has given us to promote his purposes? None of this walk down the aisle, pray the prayer, sign the card, get baptized stuff. We're talking about where the rubber meets the road. If your life is being demonstrated that you are a good steward of all that God has given you, for his promoting of his purposes. He says, that's wonderful evidence that you know that you're in the kingdom or out. And notice this, he sits there and he does not receive praise. Instead of praise, he provides a rebuke. Verse 26, he says, but, he says, but his master answered, you wicked and slothful servant. Why is he wicked? He's wicked because he looks at Jesus and he basically calls him evil. He says, the reason I didn't do what I was supposed to do, you're at fault for that. He's slothful, why? Because he, he just refused to do what God had called him to do. as as, as a posing disciple of Christ. Now, that's the first thing. He didn't give him praise. He gave him a rebuke. And he says, now, he says, and then Jesus demonstrates his excuse. He, He talks about his excuse. He says, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. He says, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Let me explain what he's saying. He says, you say that I'm cruel. You say that I reap where I do not sow. Okay, I'll give you that. That's not really who Jesus is. And he says, but say your argument is true. He goes, if you honestly believe that, you would have at least done something with that money. If you knew I was that harsh, then you would have done something with it. But it's just all an excuse, he says. So what does he do? He sits there and he says, um, he, he not only, we, we find him not only being rebuked, but we also see him with a loss of reward. He says, so take the talent of this man, and he goes, and from him, and to give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has will, be give, will, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, seven, uh, he says, that will be taken away from him. Now notice something. Have you ever heard that phrase, you can't take it with you? We're going to talk about more about this. Did you know literally you can't take it with you? I know. I mean, I know we say it, but I'm just saying we can't take it with us. It's like all the things that you treasure so much and you think is so good is going to be disastrous that if your kids are here at this church, I'm going to have to sit there and really rebuke them because before you're dead on life support, they're going to be sitting there going, man, when's he going to die because he's really tapping into what he left over for us? And I'm going to have to sit there and go, whoa, 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 time out. Here's what I tell you parents, just spend it all for the kingdom. Before you die, the best thing you can do for you, and I know some of the kids that have rich parents, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know I didn't like this church. I knew I didn't like him. All right, I knew that. Best thing that you could do, this is you say, just get your own job. Get, you know, get a job, work, you know, do what you ultimately have to do. You got that? And so, so, so in advancing these things, so he's not going to receive a reward either. Now, notice what else is going to happen. He says, but instead of the reward, he's going to suffer loss. We talked about that. Can't take it with you. Then finally, notice what he says. And he has cast this worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what he says. He does not get to enjoy eternal joy. He doesn't get to be with the master. The truth is he wanted nothing to be with the master anyway. Now God's just giving him what it is that he always wanted. To be out of his presence in darkness into an eternal hell separated from him, full of misery rather than joy. He proved that he was never a true servant of the master. Now, where do we go with this? But well, let me try to close with this illustration and application, if I could. The Crusades in the 12th century were really a blight on Christianity. It was not good. You know, you don't want. Actually, you know, I I I, I feel bad whenever I see a Christian school and they're the they're the Crusaders. We're the Crusaders. Read your history. Not a good thing, right? And so so. It, a lot of really horrible thing came, and it was supposed to be this religious war, and they're going out, and they're killing people, they're doing all these things. Well, sometimes they had to do some really, really egregious things. And so sometimes it was even too nasty for them. And so what they would do is they would hire mercenaries for a certain sum of money, and they would say, listen, there's these children in this area of children over here, and we just need you to just kind of make this go away. So what they would do is, because it was all underneath this kind of religious thing, the priests would then go, and they would be baptizing them. Uh, of course, it wasn't through immersion. Just joking. But anyway, they would, they would go, go and they would just kind of sprinkle them and they would pour water by baptizing their head over like this. And so the mercenaries would kneel down. And the, and the symbolism was that they were completely covered underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. All that they have is Jesus. Only one key thing. When they were being baptized, they were instructed to take their sword and hold it out away from their body. So that when they were baptized, everything that was underneath the water was in submission and it was handed over to the work of God. But the one thing that Jesus couldn't touch was their sword. What they did with their sword was what they just chose to do apart from his lordship. And they did some really heinous things. So here's what I, here's, here's what I believe is true. I believe for all of us who are sitting here today, that there are areas specifically of our lives, the truth of the matter is, we're just holding it out. We say, Jesus, you can have everything, but what is it that we're holding out? You can have everything. And I've I've heard people say this too. I've heard people sit there and go, well, you know what? I don't really give much money to the kingdom of God. He goes, what I do is I give my time for the kingdom of God. It doesn't work that way. All is God's. You can't sit there and say, I'm going to double up on my service so I can diminish what it is that I'm ultimately going to give for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the truth of the matter is, and I'm saying this for you, because there's nothing more than I want. Listen to me. Then, for you to stand before God and for God to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. I so desperately want that for you. But what we're going to find, I think what we find so oftentimes, is so many people are sitting back and they're taking their money. And let's admit it, the reason they're not giving over their money is because they love what the most? Their money. It's just one area that people just don't want to give, it's one area they don't want to sacrifice. They'll show up, they'll do things, they may work, they may do all these other kinds of things, but they'll sit there and say, and God will be pleased with me as long as the money is my own and I could do whatever I want to do with it. And we're gonna talk next week about some of the barriers, of what barriers are facing you and I specifically of being all in. Jesus doesn't want part of us and part of his extended. He wants us all in underneath the submission of Jesus Christ with a sense of urgency, inconsistency to promoting god's purposes do you understand that and so next week what we're going to see is we're going to see the next two weeks two obstacles next week we're going to see the obstacle of doubt many times we don't not give the way that god has called us to give because of doubt and then the second uh after that is going to be because of debt And we're going to cover what the Bible says specifically about debt and how it keeps us from being generous givers to the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, I just want us to close our eyes and bow our heads for a moment. I just want you to be honest as our musicians are coming. I just want you to be honest before the Lord. And I want you to just to simply just ask the question, am I being faithful with all that God has given me? Am I being faithful? And whatever it is, Give to him today. Sit there and say, today I repent. I know that I'm holding back. Today must be a day that we give it all. Would you pray and repent and turn and be obedient? Would you stand? Would you stand? And I'm gonna ask you to respond. This altar is open. Would you respond to the preaching of God's word this morning? All right.